0: Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show.
2: Trigger warning: This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the
0: court of law. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. Today's guest is the host of the Cults to Consciousness podcast, Shalise Ann Sola. I was actually just recently on Shalice's podcast. You can tune into that episode right now. Just visit the link in the show notes of this episode and you can go check it out. It's a great introduction to their podcast and all the amazing work that Shalise is doing over there. I wanted to bring Shalise on my show, Preacher Boys, to talk about her upbringing as a Mormon. Now, I know the focus of the show is primarily independent fundamental Baptists, but I'm realizing the longer I do the show that religious fundamentalism, while the coats of paint on the exterior may look different— The core teachings and beliefs and pressures and mechanisms that make various religious organizations operate are largely the same. And so there's things that we can learn from guests, whether it's Shalice from the Mormon Church, whether it's Alice Gretchen from the Pentecostal background, or whether it's cults that are completely non-religious like Nexium, which I've also covered on the show before. On this episode with Shalice, I really wanted to talk about something that affects many people who've grown up within religious fundamentalism. And that's the fact that Chalice was not someone who chose to be part of the Mormon church. She was born into it. And when I say that she has a heritage in the Mormon church, that's an understatement. Her lineage goes back to the literal founding of the church itself. So we talk about the trauma associated with just having such a tight connection to the fundamentalist group that you're raised in and what it means to leave when you are someone who is a second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth generation member of a high control religious group. This is a really fascinating conversation. I hope you'll enjoy every single second. Be sure to catch my episode over on the Cults to Consciousness podcast, wherever you listen to shows or watch on YouTube. They do a really well-produced show over there. But without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Shalise and Sola. Shalice, thank you so much for finally joining me on the show.
3: Thank you so much, Eric. You reached out initially when it was just chaos, complete chaos. I was planning a wedding and I was like, I do not have a second to spare except to cry myself to sleep. No, just kidding. It was a lot. But yes, now I'm very pregnant and I'm still like, you know what? We got to do this. We got to connect. And I'm so happy that I got to interview you for my channel as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If you're listening to this episode, we just had a great conversation on the Cults to Consciousness podcast. It should be out right around the time of this episode. Uh, But yeah, when I first reached out to you, you were like, I'm getting married in a week. And then I waited and I was like, I'm going to give this a very wide berth. We're going to wait and wait and wait to reach (laughs) back out. Because like, you know, your first couple months, leave people alone. And then I finally was like, I should reach back out. And then I saw you post like, I'm pregnant. And I was like, okay. (laughs) Well, I'm not giving this nine months, so we got to just figure this out. So, uh, I'm glad it's worked out. I'm glad that your your child is forever memorialized in this episode. Yes, you're you're in this final stage. You remember forever associated with the Preach Boys podcast. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're here. And one of the things we talked about on my episode with you was how many similarities there are between the religious environment you grew up in as a Mormon. And my experience as an independent fundamental Baptist yeah. and at the end of the day, whatever coat of paint you want to put on it, uh, religious culty environments all operate in very similar ways. Uh, mm. but take me into your experience because there are some differences. Uh, what was your, for lack of a better word, early memories, uh, within the Mormon church?
3: Right. My traumas, you can say, Yeah. What's your, <laughs> oh, I was going to
0: say, what's your first, uh, what was your first, uh, Uh, introduction, but you were born into it like I was. So there is no introduction. It just was life. So when's the first time you became aware of life and what was life like when you as a young girl?
3: Yeah. So for those who aren't familiar, the Mormon church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as they like to be officially called or LDS for short, it is not the one with the polygamy. So they did have it initially, but those fundamentalists broke off when the church basically had to bend to the law and say, okay, government, we won't do it. They wink winked and kind of did it for a couple of years in secret. But then officially the prophet of the mainstream Mormon church was like, all right, guys, we officially got to stop. No polygamy on earth, but there will be in heaven. So don't worry. Everything will work out in the end. And so that's when those branches started happening. So I just wanted to make that clarification that I was not part of the FLDS, which was the Keep, Sweet, Pray, and Obey documentary, or the LeBaron group who practiced blood atonement, literally killing people for God. I was the very happy, shiny missionaries who come knock on your door, Mormon. <laughs> so so I grew up in Utah in a very small town in the Mecca of all Mormons. So even more so it was just my reality. I wasn't even exposed to people who really weren't Mormon. Uh, I, I mean, I probably knew a handful, but of course I was like, oh, those poor souls. If only they knew the truth. If only they, you know, they're so close. They're surrounded by all these Mormons who could lift them up and tell them the truth, and they just refuse. That's so sad for them. So there was very much the superiority complex, which you've talked about before in IFB, as far as we have the truth, no one else does. The one true church, um they would call other churches abominable and led by Satan. Anyone who wasn't Mormon was basically led by Satan. And anyone who left was led by Satan. And so there was definitely this fear happening, but they mostly ran on guilt and shame. That was That's their bread and butter. If they can get you to self-police, if they can get you to feel so guilty about your sins that you have to go talk to the bishop about it, then they got you right where they want you and they can manipulate and control you to pretty much do anything.
0: No. So, everyone listening is going, so like an independent fundamental Baptist. That's what it it sounds like. (laughs) You were trained to gaslight yourself into conforming to this religious ideology. And, you know, I kind of said tongue in cheek in the beginning that you didn't have an introduction, but that's an understatement because uh, you have roots that go all the way back to the founding of the Mormon Church. You're like a pure blood Mormon. (laughs) Um yeah. what what were kind of your roots like if you're giving us a snapshot uh, ancestry.com look at your mormon heritage like where mm-hmm. did it start in your family line like how many generations and and who was kind of the starter pistol for this uh, cultiness
3: I mean literally the beginning so my family had the privilege of saying that My great, great – I really need to know this because I swear I say it all the time. Like my great, great, great – I don't know if it's four grades or five or whatever, but she was the first woman baptized in England by Heber C. Kimball, who was a really big deal, one of the early prophets of the church. And so I think he was a prophet. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was a prophet way back in the day. So – Like as far back as it goes, basically, they were shipping women to Utah, lots of Scandinavian women. Um, So I have my history in Norwegian, um, Swedish, Irish, English, all of those white, (laughs) not religions, those white cultures. They would bring them to Utah for their multiple wives, and they would promise them things like eternal families. And then they would get there and be like, and you're a polygamist now. And so it really was human trafficking in the beginning, as much as they don't want to admit that, but that's where my ancestry came from was over there. And it's funny because when you mentioned the ancestry.com or the DNA thing, I did a DNA test, I think it was on my heritage, and it literally says Mountain West mormon pioneers and i'm like you've got to be kidding me it's in my blood i can't run away from it <laughs> it's it's always going to be there
0: took a dna test found out i'm 100 percent that mormon right there <laughs> yeah. um, that's so funny yeah. and it's also funny that your dna test was just like white <laughs> it's just a big, yeah it's just, white. just
3: a whole bunch of white stuff yeah. People no. often think that I have some Latina in me, which is a huge compliment. Thank you. But cause I'm also a salsa dancer. So I guess it's kind of confusing, but I'm just like a whole mishmash of white basically. That's funny.
0: Yeah. That's, that. that's why I haven't taken one. Cause I'm just like, how many shades of white can I be? <laughs> that's going to be interesting. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious, like with that line, cause, it, cause, cause, I hear stories like we both have talked with Sarah Nippy from Nexium, who get yeah. drawn into a cult, or you talk you hear a story from people who like someone knocked at their door when they were 30 years old and they ended up in a cult. And I'm like, what a privilege to choose your cult, you know? I I was born <laughs> into this. This was my default life. You know, you were born into this, but I was second generation, which is small potatoes versus you like being born into this, like like we are the OGs of the Mormon church. We're, we're here. Yeah. We're like, we're crushing it for generations. Like one, how much pressure was there to be part of that history? But then beyond that, like, did you ever even have the opportunity or a gap in that world to say, Hey, there's something outside of this.
3: Right. I wasn't to answer the second question first. Cause the first question is juicy. I wasn't really exposed to anything other than Mormonism until I left Utah and moved to Portland my senior year of high school. And that's when I was determined to be the cool kid and not the weird Mormon because there weren't very many Mormons in our school and they were a little off. They're a little different. (laughs) I'm sure they're great. There were a couple of Mormon girls my age who kind of like towed the line and hacked the system to be the cool mormon so i was like if they can do it i can do it mm-hmm. but being from utah it didn't give me any brownie points at all they all just thought i was probably weird so i was trying to toe the line of like every member a missionary is the slogan they tell everybody so you need your job is to bring people to the truth and also don't be weird don't be weird don't be weird be the cool kid because you're the new kid too and you just want to fit in right. And it was a whole thing. But the first question that you asked about if I felt like I could kind of get away from that history, if I was forced to live a certain way because I have the heritage. Absolutely. So there is something called the Pioneer Trek. Have you heard of it? I have not. Oh, my gosh. Oh, this is fun. Okay. So for those who aren't familiar, Mormons, when they first started, they were kicked out of place to place to place. They moved across states, um, mostly because Joseph Smith, the founder, was doing some really sketchy stuff, and he was trying to marry young girls and, you know, multiple wives. It was clearly against the law at the time. He did end up marrying a 14-year-old. That's the youngest that we know of that he married as one of his spiritual brides. And... So all of this stuff is going on. Who's also a con man, a treasure digger. I didn't know any of this stuff until I left and actually did research with an open mind. No, they
0: don't open with but that stuff <laughs> for sure.
3: No. They just say – I mean the church is – I say the church because that's just – you probably do it too. Um, they mm-hmm. just call it the church, right? So I'm not going to say the whole name. is too long. But they do claim now, yes, he was, um, (laughs) they don't say treasure digger, maybe they do specifically, but they do admit that he would look for buried treasure for people using this stone, this rock, this, they called it a seer stone. And now they spin it to where they're like, well, he was just getting practice to translate the Book of Mormon, which were a big thing like a golden plates that he found buried because an angel told him it's a whole story we don't need to get into it but basically they have to kind of admit yeah he did do that and so he was on the run quite a bit because people are paying him all this money and he's not finding any buried treasure so weird <laughs> he's just getting lots of their money so they moved from place to place to place and eventually he was killed in prison and the next guy, Brigham Young, he's the one who took over, horrible guy. He was like, "We need to move where no one's gonna persecute us." And so they went to Utah. So it's this huge trek, and I wish I knew the miles offhand, but I think it was from Missouri and a couple other places all the way down to Utah. Hmm. And they were doing this with hand carts and also covered wagons. So people died along the trail. It was, not great. They would do it in times of like in the winter and they would take kids and women were dying or the husbands were dying and now these women are trying to figure out how to take care of their children. So what we would do is recreate this in a thing called Trek and we would do it as the youth. And so we would get the, the pioneer getup, the prairie dresses, the bonnets. People would make them or we would buy them from who knows where they bought them. And we would recreate our ancestors crossing the plains so that we could have a taste of what they went through, so that we could have our religious freedom and we could thrive as God's one true church. And the thing that I didn't know until recently, I did this whole episode on this with someone who's read all this material. Her name's Kara Burrell, aka Nuance Ho. She's a great ex-Mormon creator. She read this whole book about the track that we would recreate, which was the Handcart Company. Martin Harris Handcart Company, where Brigham Young literally just sent people to march to their death. He sent them with food that he knew was not going to last. So, didn't have enough food or rations. He sent them with handcarts that were made of green wood, knowing that they would probably fall apart on their way. Hmm. He didn't give them any oxen to help pull this. So, they're literally walking the entire way. And he sent them in the time would be the dead of winter, by the time they were in the middle of it, crossing these crazy mountainous terrains, just walking. And people were literally eating their shoes. It was that bad, just so that they didn't starve to death or freeze to death. And that's the one that we're recreating as young adults, which is very problematic. And there's so much wrong with that. It's like, Mm having someone recreate the Holocaust in the death camps or something as a faith-promoting story, it's not okay. And so we would do that. And people, people were having good experiences, bad experiences. I mean, it's all spiritual manipulation anyway. Mm-hmm. They get you to do something that's really hard. And then you go, wow, my ancestors were amazing. I could never turn my back on their sacrifices. No. If I left, it would be for nothing. And they hold that over your head And so you feel like you have this this sense of, I could never turn away from the church or else I'm turning my back on them and what they did for me. Mm -hmm. There's just so much wrong with that, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a a really weighty thing to carry, Um, especially as, again, like I've mentioned in so many conversations, especially at an age where you already are feeling weight because you're just through the awkwardness of being a teenager and figuring out what it means to be like a human being. And then you've got this spiritual, eternal weight placed on you and a historical weight placed on you going, look at all these people. Are they going to die in vain for you mm-hmm. to discard this faith? And yeah. uh, before we talk about discarding that faith, uh, I'm curious for you, did you love the every member a missionary thing when you were younger? Did you – because you are a – you know, you're an outspoken person, you're pretty extroverted from what I can tell. You've got a podcast, like you've got a voice. Was it something where you were like a great ambassador for the church, or was it kind of like, yeah, I'm a I'm also a Mormon? You know, like how did you wear your <laughs> faith uh growing up?
3: Well, I definitely appreciate that. Thank you. I was not always this way. In fact, I was the complete opposite. Interesting. And Yeah, I didn't find my voice until long after I left the church. It it started coming up. And I I did push back on a couple things. But ultimately, I was very much, okay, I'm going to follow the rules. I'm a type A person. So give me the checklist that I need to follow to get to heaven, the highest level of heaven, because in Mormonism, there are levels. Mm -hmm. And so I really just wanted to it was hard because i had to tell the line of self-expression and doing the right thing and what i mean by that is i grew up a dancer that was the only way i felt i could really truly express myself without limits and boundaries but at the same time we're the only team who can't actually do hip-hop with cool twerking and crumping because that's immodest like you can't be doing that and i would be so embarrassed that we were the team dancing to mc hammer and not actually cool hip-hop music <laughs> Um, so there was this weird juxtaposition of, I want to do all the right things, but also I can't express myself in the way that I dress. And I knew at a young age that I loved clothing and fashion and I was boxed into these modesty standards, not as intense as the IFB, hundred percent, not as intense, but I didn't want to wear cap sleeves under tank tops, under spaghetti straps, and I wanted to wear shorts and I couldn't do that. And so there were ways that I was kind of rebelling, but also very much just wanted to follow the rules. So when it came to every member of missionary, I think in Utah, that just wasn't really a thing because everyone was pretty much Mormon. Everyone that I knew was Mormon. But when I moved away, I remember feeling that pressure of, oh, man, I really need to convert my classmates, but still try to fit in. I remember inviting someone to church, and she was like, yeah, maybe, and then she didn't go. And then she ended up having an intervention with me in her car because she actually did research on Mormonism in the school library, and she wrote down all the things that were wrong with it and presented me with this notebook and was like, this is all the things that you believe. And at the time, I didn't know that it was true because as a Mormon, they actively lie to you about the Mormon history. And they change it and they omit things on purpose So, or they they twist it to make it seem like a faith-promoting story. Right. So that's one thing I want to point out too is people who learn about Mormonism who've never been in it, they're like, okay, that's ridiculous. Why would anyone believe that? But you have to understand that most people in Mormonism don't even know about that stuff or no. they think they know about it, but they don't know the whole truth. So for example, one of the stories that I learned the whole truth of that they used as a manipulation tactic to make us think that the prophet was the one true prophet. They made a whole movie about it, and we went and watched it as a youth. So (laughs) it was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And it was Joseph Smith getting tarred and feathered, being ripped out of his home, getting tarred and feathered, pouring literal hot tar over him and feathers, and he's crying, and it hurts, and it burns. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, who would do that to anyone? Of course, when you're watching someone be tortured, you're going to have – an emotional response yeah. but they monopolize emotional responses as well that's you feeling the spirit and that's you mm-hmm. getting confirmation that he's a true prophet so what they don't tell you about that story is that the reason a mob came to his house to do that was because he was trying to marry their underage daughters and these brothers his family literally brought along with them a surgeon or a doctor to castrate him because of what he was trying to do oh, wow. in their town. The doctor chickened out and was like, I can't do it. So like, all right, let's just tar and feather him then. But they don't, yeah, tell, you backup, yeah. <laughs> the they
0: don't tell you that no, part. Yeah, The castration now, tar and feather the next, <laughs> next round of business.
3: Yeah. And so when I was presented with all of these things, like Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon by putting his head into a hat, I was like, oh, that's the oldest anti-Mormon rumor in the book. Mm. And because... I had heard of it, but I was never told that that was the truth. She was right. That's how we did it. (laughs) And so so I just would write it off. I'm like, that's silly. I like none of that is true. I would know because I'm Mormon. And she eventually split ways with me. She kind of was like, well, I tried to save her soul and she wouldn't listen. So it cost our friendship, which was a bummer. But in that way, it was like. Do I try to be a missionary, or do I just live by example? That was one thing. I'm like, well, maybe yeah. I'll just show people that I'm really happy and really Christ-like, and they'll just naturally want to ask me questions. It didn't really work. Um, so I I failed at the every Mormon a missionary thing. Every member yeah. A missionary.
0: Yeah, we we always got the thing. Um, you know, you might be the only Bible someone reads. You know, so you were kind of like, I might be the only Book of Mormon that someone reads. We've got to <laughs> just put on. Um, I, I, I'm curious on this perspective, like, cause this is something I go back and forth with all the time. You know, that the people who are the true historians within the Mormon church, like the, the guys that actually know the true story, know all these things and are wildly spinning a lot of these stories to sound better than they are. Do you think that like. What percentage of people teaching and propagating this stuff do you think actually know the true story and they're sugarcoating it versus are just convinced and they're sharing what they find to be actually truly helpful? Because, like, in the IFB, I see a lot of pastors who I think are legitimately good dudes who just teach really crappy stuff because they think mm-hmm. like that's what they were taught was right and they just never questioned. But then there's also guys who are like, you know better than this. Like, you're just spreading this. So, like, with the people you were around like your leadership and like maybe even your parents like do you think they were true believers or do you think they were like using it as a control mechanism for some nefarious greater purpose
3: that's a great question and we often speak about that when it comes to the ones who are leading the church the prophets his 12 apostles and all of them because we're like how could they not know
1: yeah how
3: can they not know what the truth is, and just truly be blissfully ignorant. I think when it comes down to the lower ranks of the church, the levels of the membership, the bishops presiding over the wards or congregations, even the stake presidents who preside over Mm -hmm. the different wards, I really don't think they know. Because, and maybe they have, maybe they've done research and just choose the apologetic side, because there's always some really weak argument against those different things. So one of the arguments was, well, times were different back then, and marrying a 14-year-old wasn't uncommon. But it really was. But it's, it's enough of a gray area for some members to be like, oh, okay, that makes sense, instead of really digging into it further. So I really don't think that most people know the answers to this stuff. And also because we're taught not to seek it out. Because if it's not within a church-approved resource, it's probably propaganda and anti-Mormon lies. And so even if you were to seek it out and find the truth, you probably would be too afraid to believe it. And so... They're really, really good at this information control and keeping you within the bubble. And they'll say to you, so this is like another thing. Well, the members will say, no, they always encourage you to search, ponder, and pray and to ask God for yourself and to get your own personal revelation is what they would say. But if you come back with an answer of, you know, I prayed about it and I really just don't feel good about Joseph Smith marrying a 14-year-old, they would say, ah, Sister Sola. (laughs) Why don't you read these scriptures about how polygamy was accepted in the old times or read this or read that? And why don't you try again? Why don't you pray again? Because I feel like you're almost there. So sure, you can come up with an answer, but if it doesn't match theirs, then you need to try again. And if it's not within a church approved resource, then it's just you can't even use that as information. You just have to throw that out. Which is why it's such a big deal that recently they have been listing things on their website called the Gospel Topics Essays, which are fairly new, I want to say in the last 10 years, maybe in the last five, where they did start writing out all these things of their wording would be Joseph Smith married, I think her name was Helen Kimball when she was just shy of her 15th birthday, because they couldn't even say 14. (laughs) They still have to, but it's there. If you read between the lines, they are starting to admit to some things and because they can't avoid it anymore because the information is out there. So I feel like at the highest, highest ranks, they know what's going on. Do I think they're intentionally manipulating people? Maybe they're a multi hundred billion dollar corporation and they know that when people leave they don't get their tithing money anymore which is a requirement 10% of your income. So I don't know it's really tricky because maybe there's some people at the top who truly do believe that getting people's money and doing this for the Lord and running his one true church is what's best and maybe there are people who are like yeah I know it's a bunch of BS but I'm not going to mess with my paycheck. Yeah. So I mean how do you really know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's a frustrating, but true answer is like, how do you know? How do you know the, the heart of the person who's doing it? Even though, yeah. like you said, you look at these and you go, you got to know, like, if I know you got to know.
3: Yeah. <laughs> and, um,
0: when you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes.
2: Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time, visit a new state of mind.
0: Yeah, I, I I've been thinking a lot about thought-terminating cliches, like really for the last like two years. Just I always think about it, and the verse that we always got uh, when we would ask questions about, well, doesn't this other belief system teach this? Or hey, this guy that criticizes our belief on this says this. The verse we would always throw out was in Romans, where it says, uh, "Be wise into that which is good and simple concerning evil," which basically means. Study the good things that we're showing you, and you don't need to know the horrible demonic teachings that they're teaching somewhere else. And it's like, Mm. what a wild way to view the world is to be born into something that you're told is true, and that to be an expert in anything else or to seek out anything else is to forsake that. Like It kind of puts you in the ultimate bubble of like, yeah, well, I have no way to judge this against anything, so I guess we'll stick with it. Um, I got
3: one for you thought stopping cliche that they love which is doubt your doubts
0: oh my god (laughs) so
3: don't even consider that something might be wrong or don't even consider your uneasy feeling if you're having doubts you should stop (laughs) like i don't know how much worse it can get of don't critical thing completely
0: (laughs) completely disregard all gut feelings that you have yeah
3: and then another thing that they did recently over the pulpit i think it was within the last two years or so they got up and they were like if you're having issues with some questions about the church and the history and i'm like wow they're actually getting somewhere they're gonna tell people to look into it and to pray about it they literally just said research is not the answer pray and i'm like wait a second We're not even going to tell them to go seek it out and then pray about it. It's just, if you have questions, why would you research? They're literally telling people, don't look into it, just pray about it. And we all know that if you aren't exposed to all the information, you can't make an educated decision. So if you pray about something, your gut is probably going to go to the side of everything's fine, everything's fine. And then you're going to be like, oh yeah, God told me everything's great and I don't even need to know the answer. Because your confirmation bias is going to lead you to the side that's more comfortable, not the side – because you're not following intuition. It's just confirmation bias. So not the side that's going to tell you, no, you really should go Google that and potentially lose your family, your friends, maybe even your job, your entire community, and your identity. You're not going to do that. It's just ridiculous.
0: Yeah, the people saying research is not the answer, just pray about it. it, should definitely be opening massive colleges. I think that's a really great move. <laughs> Those are the people that should be training our next generation of thinkers. Yeah. Um, your story, as someone who has these strong ties, you're in this very, very constrictive kind of worldview. Um, tale as old as time, the Mormon moves to Las Vegas, to Sin City, and starts <laughs> questioning... Um, Tell me a little bit about that process of the the worldview really shattering. Because it, it sounds like when I hear you on other podcasts or I've listened to your story, it sounds like, yes, it's a culmination of times you've tried to find your voice, but it seems like the shattering was very sudden in terms mm-hmm. of timeline. Is that an accurate uh, understanding of the story or did it feel like a really slow crack through the system?
3: I, I feel like that's accurate, that it all came crashing down at once. <clears throat> I did have questions growing up. I didn't understand the polygamy in heaven. I just remember thinking, no, that's not going to happen to me, even though they they tell you that you will practice polygamy in heaven if you make it to the highest level, which is where your family is, which is where you want to go, right? So there were little things along the way. Uh, when my friend did have that intervention with me in Oregon, I did Google for the first time and mm. uncovered some really disgusting temple practices that they no longer did, like pretending to slit your throat, pretending to cut out your bowels if you ever reveal the secrets of the temple. It's all based in Freemasonry that Joseph Smith literally just ripped off when he became a Freemason and was like, guys, I had a revelation. This is the temple ceremony that's going to get you to the highest level of heaven. And everyone's like, great. Did they really
0: retire that? Not to segue, because I've heard from some people that they still do it. They just do it at a different level than what basic basic mormons with (laughs)
1: you.
3: so they took that out in the 90s the actual slitting your throat motion but apparently as told to me by people who have recently left they still do what's i don't know if you can see this like cup motion so after you did the slitting of the bowels you would put your hand in a cup that would be representing your bowels coming out into the cup they still do the cup but they don't do the slitting motion.
0: They kept the grosser one. But anyway, that, <laughs> we're yeah. going to get rid of the throat slit, but the bowels stay. Um, but anyway, sorry. So your, your shattering moment. You live in yeah. Las Vegas. Um,
3: yeah. And it was a pretty so, sudden
0: burst of just what the heck is going on? This doesn't make sense.
3: Well, because he attacked my character. He attacked me as a human being. And that's something that I wasn't willing to accept where I I did accept it briefly, and then I was like, hold on. I know that I'm a good person. I know that I'm not extremely sinful. I know that I've been following the rules. I'm 20 years old, and I still haven't drank alcohol. I've never tried weed. I'm still a virgin. I'm still this. I'm still that. I'm, I'm only wearing shorts and working on Sundays. That shouldn't be enough to keep me out of the temple. It shouldn't be enough for him to say that I'm not spiritual enough. I mean, it was just so heavy, this guilt and this shame, which is something that I had experienced my entire life in Mormonism. And I was accepting that as part of my reality. And that's how it was growing up. But this was next level. This was, you are scum of the earth. This is what you did is so unholy and so unnatural. We're talking about oral sex, by the way. Let me just demystify that which my boyfriend was like, please, let's do it. We had been dating for a year. I thought I was going to marry him. And then we did it. And he's like, we should go talk to the bishop. And so I was forced into this confessional. Such and, a wild chain of events. Come it's on, so... please.
0: But also, we need to go talk to the bishop now.
3: <laughs> yeah. Just- I was completely blamed. And I know that that's not uncommon in some of these Christian denominations, but... I was completely blamed for it. He told me that my boy, or I should break up with him because I'm a bad influence. I'm a bad influence. Um, that I wasn't spiritual enough. And he really just attacked me at my core. And I found out later that it was actually a rule sometime in the 80s where they had a revelation that even married couples shouldn't have oral sex. And it was such a huge deal and there was such a huge outcry that they had to reverse it like nine months later. So I think my bishop was still living in that mentality of oral sex is evil and wrong and you shouldn't do it. And so he was trying to tell me, he's like, oral sex is sexually. And I was like, um, it's not, though, (laughs) or else I would have had a lot more fun doing the real thing. (laughs) But I just left feeling like such a horrible person. And I was crying and I was so upset. And I remember calling my mom and she was so pissed off. She was like, he said, what do you? Because my mom was always the cool Mormon parent where She encouraged me to do the right thing in a very loving, gentle way of Mm. these are the boundaries and we're going to swim within them. She wasn't like, you will follow these rules. And so I always felt like she gave me the opportunity to choose. And so when I told her that, that he said I wasn't spiritual enough, she was so angry. She was like, you're more spiritual than me. You're the most spiritual person I know. How dare he Mm. say that about you? And it's probably the support like that that got me to question his authority more than I would have. Maybe mm. I would have just accepted it if she didn't respond that way. Right. And so I just remember going home feeling so awful about myself and questioning everything because here I was thinking that I was doing everything right, that I was checking all the boxes. That sure, I wear tank tops and shorts, but it's also 130 degrees in Las Vegas. <laughs> like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna wear those Bermuda shorts down to my no. knees. And, and just everything shattering for me. And I thought that I had found my eternal companion, who was a very faithful Mormon man. And that's what you do when you're in 1920s, you find your eternal companion, you get married, you have kids, mission accomplished. And so when all this shattered, which he did break up with me for like a hot second, I think we got back together after a few weeks, but he did break up with me according to what the bishop wanted. And I just felt so low that I was like, wait, what if I don't have to feel this way? What if my friend in Oregon had a point? And what if I'm missing something? And what if it's not true and I'm suffering for no reason? And that was the first time I allowed myself to really search, ponder, and pray with an open mind <laughs> with Google. And that I, I must have spent at least eight hours at my computer through the night, sun comes up and I'm still just trying to figure out like following these rabbit holes and then learned about the first vision, which Joseph Smith had and apparently saw God, but there's multiple versions Mm -hmm. and they're all very different. And the book of Abraham, which he apparently translated from a mummy, like he, he bought a mummy from a traveling road show. There was a script in it and he's like, I can translate this by the power of God. He translates it. I say that in air quotes. And now that we have the script and Egyptologists who can actually translate Egyptian, it's nowhere near what he said. It's a complete, it's a funerary script. Mm. And so I was like, well, if he made that up, he probably made everything up. And so, because of that emotional break, and because I felt so low and worthless and ashamed, I was able to actually see things for what they were. And that's when I finally let go of it. And I just thought, wow, it's all made up. And I don't have mm. to feel this way anymore.
0: Like we said, it's a culmination of so many things, right? That that popped up over time. And then it's like, okay, well, this is like undeniable at this point. Mm-hmm. Like this is something. Um, and, and again, information shatters these things so quickly. And I, I think that is one thing with Mormonism specifically is like, there's so much that's just pure snake oil. That's like so clearly – I mean, so many of the Joseph Smith stories are just so clearly bizarre, like him mistranslating and saying, like, I can read Egyptian. It's like, we know provably you cannot read Egyptian. Yeah. <laughs>
3: like,
0: um, I think there's there's some things there that are that are once you turn that light on, you can't turn it off. And you're seeing that with so many Mormons leaving the church. It's the reason they're rebranding so much. Um, yeah. Also, just side note, this is totally just random, but you brought up mummies. <laughs> so here we go. Um, I found out 2 days ago that the reason that we don't have do you know the reason for why we don't have many mummies left
3: Isn't it because they just shipped them all over the place and like right white rich dudes bought them
0: Whatever you think it's worse No so the reason <laughs> that there are not so there's we have mummies but there's a lot of mummies that are missing like that they just oh we don't have them like we're not in a museum they're not found like burial plots are empty so so in victorian era times it was not uncommon to consume mummies <gasps> no. because they yeah so people would eat pieces of mummies and thought it was medicinal so like victorian era people would literally get together and would serve pieces of mummy that would be ground cool. up and eaten. So anyway, just a fun segue that I found out. And now you get to know uh, that is why. So just imagine as Joseph Smith is transcribing, I don't know that he did, but I like to imagine he's he's snacking while he's uh, transcri- <laughs> oh God, transcribing so this. gross. Product. But yeah, I found that out like two days ago. Um, and go- like it was like one of those things that pulls, pulls up on TikTok. You're like, that's not true. And then you Google it and you're like, oh my God, this is true. We're so gross as a species. Um, That has nothing to do with anything in this episode, but I'm glad everyone knows that now. Um,
3: No, it has everything to do with it because it's the lengths that people will go to do something that they believe is going to help them achieve something, whether it's exaltation or health benefits. People do the craziest things when they get these beliefs stuck in their head.
0: Yep. It, yeah. The the wealthy would the host would have an Egyptian mummy. The guest would cut off pieces of the mummy's unwrapped flesh and nibble on it. Uh, eternal jerky is uh it's Oh my really God. good. Um it's so gross. Anyway, all that to say, uh it sounds like it was a good thing that your um it sounds like it was a good thing that your mom was willing to help you kind of dissect some of this for lack of a better word, and like help you kind of work through these questions. But as you go deeper, because like there's layers, right? Your mom's still Mormon. She's still in this world. Generational heritage, again, all informing Mm -hmm. all of this. So, like, yeah, questioning a local bishop is one thing. Questioning the church at large, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, let's not go too crazy here. Did you feel a sense of isolation or was it like your family and friends that were open kind of went on this journey with you as you kind of untangled yourself from, okay, here's the crazy things. Those are not true to do I even believe any of this to be true?
3: Mm -hmm. I, Even though I was very much an introvert, I was finding my voice, especially going to college. I left when I was literally turned 18 in the moving van on the way to Vegas. I did have that independence about me and I wanted to do things on my own frequently. So even moving to Vegas alone, doing all those things, going to college, figuring it out, I was fine with it. And so when I had that moment of clarity of, oh, I can just drop this and release this, I didn't feel super isolated. I just felt like, okay, this is a new journey that I'm going to go on now by myself. Mm. And I took my questions to my mom initially because I thought, well, maybe I just Found a weird website, maybe she right. knows the answers to this. And she took her question or my questions to the bishop, to the stake president, to whoever would listen, and no one knew the answers. So I didn't know that I actually set off a domino effect on her faith crisis because she was like, wait, I have to be able to tell my kid all of these things because she's asking me and I need to know these answers. And no one could give her any answers either. And they would just say, you just have to have faith as a child. And what she would say is, okay, but I'm not a child and my child is asking. So I need to give her an answer. Mm. And so that sent her off into Google land. (laughs) And she had the coming out call to me about leaving because she was so worried that I was still Mormon. And that I would want to get married in the temple within the next year or so. And that she wouldn't be able to attend my own wedding because she was no longer Mormon. So she was just like, Hey, I haven't been going to church, but I will do whatever it takes to be at your wedding if that's what you want. And I was like, oh, mom, you're fine. I I left and she was so relieved. And usually it's the other way around where yeah. the kid has to come out to the parent and, for, or, or, and face isolation or ostracization or any of that, which happens frequently. But it was the other way around and thankfully it was a happier ending. And so with her... It, it was good that we could come together and be like, wait, what did you find about this? What did you find about that? And we had each other to bounce ideas off of. And my immediate family, like my brothers, were never super into Mormonism because they're they're my half-brothers, technically. Their dad lived in Chicago. They would go there in the summer and not have to be Mormon. And they're like, this is great. <laughs> and so yeah. they were never really involved. And so I really did have my family unit from the beginning once I started deconstructing, which is so rare. And so I'm very grateful for that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Super rare. Um, and that's, it's, it's a huge, I mean, just to have somebody, even if they stay in a religion to be willing to have relationship with you as you're going through those questions is so huge and like Mm -hmm. such a blessing for lack of a better word. Um, I was like trying to cycle through like what's a non Christian religious term. Yeah, to say that. <laughs> but it's it is. It's such a it's such a great thing to have that. But then to have someone who's leaving at a similar time. I mean, obviously there's times where you're a little further ahead of somebody or you're a little further behind. And but to have someone to work through that with is is huge. Um I'm I'm curious now, because like again, generational roots are hard to pull up. Uh, that operating system that's there humming in the background that you wake up with, that you brush your teeth, you know, with the default knowledge that heaven, hell, eternity, God, Joseph Smith, plates, like all these things are always there. How did you go about discovering? And this, I know there's not an end point, so you still are, but how'd you go about like going, here's what I actually see in the world. Here's what's, you know, here's what reality seems to actually be like what was that process like in in not only just leaving the church and just saying, hey, I don't believe that? And actually going, Okay, what do I believe? What is reality? And, you know, was there was there shame in giving up a long heritage? Like what were all those kind of elements that that you felt exiting?
3: It was a culmination of a lot of things. And I think it's really common for everyone to initially feel liberated and excited. And also extremely terrified because you've been living within these boundaries for so long. You don't have to think about your choices. It's just someone has already laid it out for you. You can do this and you can't do that. And that's what it is. You don't have to actually consciously think about your decisions about cause and effect Mm. and the way that you want to present because you've already been told how to do that. So part of me was like, wow, I can wear these shorts and tank tops and design whatever I want because I was going to school for fashion. And not feel weird about it. And this is exciting and fun. And wow, I can fully express myself. Do I want to dive into intimacy right away? Mm -hmm. I decided that I was going to stay virgin until I was married. I was still not going to drink alcohol. Like I was still in some ways keeping that safety blanket of what I knew, which was I've been fine without alcohol and weed or whatever it was or sex, even though I wanted it so bad. (laughs) I was like, I've been fine without it. So maybe I should just keep going and then explore in other ways. Mm -hmm. And I think it just took years for that to kind of crumble a bit. So I think it was eight years after I left the church that I uncovered memories of child sexual abuse where confronted my abuser. He admitted to a bunch of stuff. He's since admitted to more than I could even remember. And that sent me on a road of I need to heal and fix this part of my childhood that's been informing my personality and forming the quiet, um, introverted, barely spoke Shalise that I knew from my childhood and breaking out of my shell and owning myself and owning my sexuality in a healthy way. And that sent me to Peru to do ayahuasca and, and have this incredible experience there which led me to wanting to write my story, which led me to researching more about Mormonism to make sure I would write it down correctly, which led me to realizing I knew nothing about Mormonism. And there was so much that I still didn't know about the history of the church and all the awful things that it propagated. And that led me to being a co-host on another podcast, and they kicked me off in an unsavory way. And that led me to starting my own. So it really is just one thing after the other. But following my intuition following things that felt right, following things that made me truly happy instead of allowing myself to feel guilt and shame over things that should not be shameful. And really just sinking into who I wanted to be as a person, it took years. And so I'm 33 now. I left when I was 20, um, And still I'm trying to unravel things or... I have moments where I feel guilty or shameful about something and then I realize that I shouldn't. And then that's just Mormon programming popping its little head up into my life and being like, I remember me. So it just takes time really and being true and authentic to myself.
0: You drop many seeds along the way of things that we could probably spend hours talking about. Yeah. <laughs> um, ayahuasca to, you know, uh, yeah, 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 ayahuasca journey. And then, uh, then did this, 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 and this start a podcast. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I am curious because reactionary thinking is just something that's can be so bad. And we see this with like breaking Amish, right? Like, that's like the cliche is like, I was Amish and we're the most rigid you can be. And now like I went way too hard in partying and I'm like, you know, and and it's the examples you hear in church. It's like, if you leave the religion, you're going to be strung out on drugs and sleeping with everybody and all the things that they throw out as a long list, which is not the typical experience for, uh, for many people who leave. But you mentioned like a healthy way of expressing yourself, finding your identity. Mm -hmm. You mentioned going which is really funny hearing your story is like, no drinking, no weed, ayahuasca. Like, yeah. how did you go about exploring things in a healthy way and not in a reactionary way where it's like, they said I couldn't drink. I'm going to drink a lot. They said I couldn't do drugs. I'm going to do all the drugs. Like all the things that are like the cliches that people can stumble into. How did Mm -hmm. you navigate healthfully exploring the outside world.
3: Well, I kind of mentioned this, I think so, in the interview I just did with you on my podcast, which is I didn't realize until recently that I was still very much in that black and white thinking, and it was easier for me to do all or nothing. And so with the alcohol thing, I just felt like, well, I've never tried it, and I've been fine this far, so why even start? And then I started learning reasons like, well, people spend a lot of money on alcohol. Well, it's really not good for your liver. Okay. I understand now that not everyone becomes alcoholics and acts like the people in Vegas who I was serving at the hard rock hotel. And I know that there's, there's a huge gradient of how you can experience alcohol, but I don't know what I'm missing and I'd rather not get addicted to anything. Mm. And having my dad who I knew was very, I, I believe was an alcoholic and I, from later, once he left the church and started getting more into that, I was like, you know what, maybe that's a gene that I have. And maybe that's something that I don't really want to touch on. Even to this day, I've only had two actual drinks in my life and they were on my honeymoon. And I was like, all right, let's give it a shot. Yeah, I didn't really like it. And then I got pregnant. <laughs> so no. I don't know. Now's not, to say? To
0: start, so. Now's
3: not the time to start. Now's not the time to start. So I think finding the healthy balance for me, just it's I mean, I wouldn't really recommend it. It was kind of from a fear perspective of how I was just so strict against not doing anything at all. And then the all or nothing thing with ayahuasca, it took a long time and it took a while for me to hear experiences of other people who had done plant medicines like the psychedelics, the mushrooms, the ayahuasca, and had incredibly transformative experiences. And I was at an all-time low in my life because I had these memories and I realized that, A huge part of my childhood was a lie or blocked out, or, you know, it it was traumatizing. And so I was thinking, okay, well, I don't have this religion to turn to that I could be like, help save me from myself Mm -hmm. because I was falling into depression. And I learned that one night with ayahuasca is like seven years of therapy. And so really it was just sign me up (laughs) because that's the quickest way to fix myself. And I just, Mm I wanted to be better. I just wanted to feel okay. And so that's why I dove off the deep end into psychedelics. But I will say that I was I was in a healthy place because I had people around me who were making sure that I wasn't like, let's do mushrooms every night, you know,
1: mm-hmm. because
3: it can go that direction. And not to say that mushrooms are addictive. They're not. But you can get addicted to that lifestyle. Yeah. And so... I think I was just surrounded by the right people who led me down a path that was healthy. And I would say that that's probably key is Mm -hmm. knowing yourself and always coming back to that awareness of, is this truly helping me? We talked about it before, or am I just rebelling to rebel? Mm -hmm. Or am I trying something because I actually want to? Is this going to be beneficial or harmful to me and my body? And really just coming back to self and what you feel is right for you. I think that's probably my best advice: was just know yourself and discover yourself within a way that you can see would be healthy.
0: Yeah, and I think that all goes full circle back to information, right? Like you're mm-hmm. making safe, informed decisions backed yes. by a community that is safe and also informed. You know, and I think that's that is all the difference versus just. I'm going to, you know, like that reactionary mindset, you know? And I I think uh, the biggest question for me now, and I know I'll I'll link to some show note episodes because I'm sure some people are going, I want to know every detail about the ayahuasca journey. So I will link to. (laughs) There's a whole episode on that. (laughs) Yeah, I'll I'll link to your episode talking about that because it is fascinating and I think it's really interesting. Um, But in keeping with the theme of this episode of kind of rewiring your brain when you do have this lineage of one way of thinking. I guess your your early life was very much one of what did Joseph Smith say? What does the Book of Mormon say? What does my church say? Now, what does your thought process look like? Like for someone who's going, okay, that operating system doesn't work, and I relate to it from the IFB perspective, or someone's listening from Pentecost or whatever background, what is the way in which you operate now when you receive information? How do you determine Mm -hmm. what's for you and what's not for you without having a divine religious rule book telling you this is and this isn't?
3: I think just having a grounded perspective and really asking yourself the hard questions of does this resonate or is this something that old me would have rejected? So when I discovered Um, I think it was just like a series on, it's called Psychedelica, I think. And there was an episode on ayahuasca. It was one of those like recommended for you. It just popped up. And my initial thought was, oh, no, all drugs are bad. You will get addicted and die. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Anything that is mind altering in any sort of way, that was part of the Mormon upbringing, which is that's why we don't drink coffee. It's mind altering. That's why you don't drink caffeine.
0: Religion, not mind altering at all. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
3: right. <laughs> right. <clears throat> and so there was that moment of clarity where I said to myself, mm, do I really believe that? I've been out of the church for eight years. Do you think maybe there's a possibility? Maybe, Shalice, talking to myself, think there's maybe a possibility that something could be beneficial if it's mind altering? I don't know. Let's watch the episode. And through watching it and learning about the ancient indigenous practices and the way that they came across this medicine and the way that it was distributed and used and the shamans who spent years learning how to work with the medicine and actually healing people, I thought, oh, interesting. Maybe there is something to that. And so I think it just takes the conscious awareness of when you have a thought, asking yourself, is that something that old me would have had? that thought? Or is this new me having this thought? And it does take work. And sometimes it's hard to pinpoint, which is why awareness is so key and why listening to other people's stories is helpful. Mm -hmm. Because you can watch someone having an aha moment and then go, oh, I also still think that way. And I didn't even know it was connected to my past. Mm -hmm. And so I think just being grounded in your choices and being willing to change and shift. That's a huge one. Because Just because you're not thinking in your programmed past self doesn't mean you're thinking in your new self because you still haven't built the new self yet. If you're just coming out of something, you don't have a baseline to fall back on. You just have what you don't want. So now you have to think about who you want to be, how you want to present, how you want to act in the world, and what change you want to affect. And maybe it's not a lot of change. Maybe it's just I want to be at peace with myself. Will this decision bring me peace? Will doing magic mushrooms bring me peace? If it's no, don't do them. <laughs> if that is something that scares you and you want nothing to do with it, you don't have to dive into that. And I think that's part of knowing when to not overcorrect mm-hmm. because if you feel like you're just you just want to do something because you never got the chance to and that's really the only thing that's telling you to do that, maybe sit back and go I'm going to research this a little bit more. I'm going to see if that's really right for me. Or if it's something that keeps coming to your mind where you're like, man, it seems like every conversation I get in with my friends lately ends in mushrooms. Maybe there is something to this. Maybe I should pay attention. Maybe it's something that is calling to me and I need to do some research about it and see if it's right for me. I don't know. But coming at those decisions from first an informed place, an educated place, and a place where you feel like Resonates with you in that current moment, being willing to change your mind if new information presents itself or if you change as a person and now you're expanding and now mushrooms didn't make sense to me before doing alcohol, (laughs) doing alcohol, alcohol. drinking alcohol, (laughs) so Mormon, (laughs) drinking alcohol doesn't make sense when you're pregnant. I don't know, maybe in four years when my child's older, I'll be like, yeah, this is great. Maybe after she's born, I'm like, I want to try a glass of wine. It's okay to shift and change. And I think that's another thing religion teaches you is you can't change, be steadfast in your ways, Mm -hmm. suffer for the Lord. It's this way. Never do it that other way. They teach you that rigidity is good. It's a good thing. It's celebrated. But it's not helpful for anybody because we change and we grow all the time yeah. as humans. And so allow yourself to shift. It's okay if your opinion changes.
0: Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's not enough to know what you don't want. You have to start discovering what you do. And I think mm-hmm. that's, that's huge. And, and also, I think it's where the conversation of deconstruction, and I really don't like the phrase, and I don't want to be like the guy that's like, that really buzz big buzzword. I don't like it. But I really don't like the idea that there's an end point. And I think deconstruction alludes to this idea that, okay, once I finish this, then I'm left with like this perfect, like right way, which is still a very fundamentalist approach. I think the truth is we're always learning, we're always evolving, we're taking new information, processing it, and acting accordingly. And that's a very scientific way to live. Like, that's a very, like, that's the way I think we're programmed as human beings to live is to consume information. Like digest it and then act in accordance with that new information, mm-hmm. and um and you said it perfectly. Like, the, is this the old me or is this the new me? And uh, I think there's a lot to learn from the new you. I think you've shared so much on here that is that's so helpful, and I know you constantly are on your show. Uh, for anybody who wants to know more from the new. And improved chalice 2.0 <laughs> um what's the best way for them to do that i know you have the podcast cults to consciousness i know you're working on a book that uh should mm-hmm. be coming sometime soon so uh <laughs> what's the best way for people to keep in touch with you and follow your journey as you keep moving forward in life
3: yes thank you and even from when i started the channel to now i'm sure if i were to watch episodes of me way back when i would be don't like oh it. i don't even know if, I, if that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that resonates made that um yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So if you want to hear from the ever evolving me, you can go to our YouTube channel at cults to consciousness. And we just platform other survivors of all different cults and backgrounds and high control groups. And we dig into their stories and see how they've gone from being programmed to who they are now, which is usually or always an incredible person living their best life. So you can check that out. We're on Instagram at cults to consciousness as well. And yeah, the book, I'm still I'm still working on getting a literary agent so I can really get the process going. And I think when we went hard with the channel right after the wedding during the strike, because I work in motion picture industry, so I do wardrobe and costumes for TV shows and commercials, and I'm an actor as well for commercials and TV. And so when the strike happened, I really doubled down on the channel with my husband and haven't put a lot of time and effort into the book. So that's my fault. But so much good has come of it. And we've built such an amazing community. And I really feel fortunate to have a platform to be able to showcase these stories and these survivors because it's truly inspirational to see where these people have come from and how they're doing now.
0: Beautiful. Well, thank you so much again for joining me. If you're listening, be sure to head over to Colts and Consciousness. If you need a good uh, starter episode, there's one with yours truly uh, that should be there right now. So dip your toe in with that. And then definitely go listen to, I mean, all of the back catalog. Uh, There's so many great episodes. I'll link to a couple highlights you should check out in the show notes of this one. But for now, uh, hopefully not the last time. Shalise, thanks so much for joining me on the show.
3: Thank you so much. It's always fun having conversations with people who have done this for a while and also just have so much information. And you gave a lot of gold nuggets on our channel also. And it's just been so great chatting with you. It's been a good time. Thank you.
2: Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc.